This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Covered in Pet Hair, a boozy web show for pet lovers on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Isabel Alvarez Arada, and today I have the pleasure of having a drink and a chat with a renowned veterinary behaviorist. I am super excited. I will tell you all about him and introduce you as soon as we come back from these messages from our sponsors. How many of you have pets? My hand's raised. Now think about how lucky you are to have such a sweet little pet in your life. And that pet is lucky to have you too. But unfortunately, there are countless pets out there that don't have a home to call their own. However, Bob's from Skechers is trying to change that. So we developed Bob's for Dogs and Cats to help pets in need. With every purchase of adorable Bob's footwear or fun, stylish apparel, or even the cutest Bob's pet accessories, Skechers makes a donation to Petco Love to help save shelter pets. And with your help, we've already saved the lives of over 1 million pets and raised over $7 million. So while you're getting style and comfort with features like Skechers' famous memory foam cushioning, you're also helping to save an adorable pet in need and helping another lucky owner be connected with a future best friend and companion because happiness is having a loving pet by your side. Find Bob's at a Skechers store, Skechers.com, select Petco locations, or wherever stylish footwear is sold. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Covered in Pet Hair. I'm your host, Isabel Alvarez-Arada, and today I have the pleasure of having a drink and a chat with a pet parent, a doctor of veterinary medicine. He's a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists. He's also a certified animal behavior consultant. He's an author, an entrepreneur. He serves as an expert witness. He's an adventure seeker, a road tripper, a foodie. He's simultaneously a wine snob and a box wine drinker. He is a craft beer guru. He loves his coffee, his tea, and loves to travel. He's a fitness fanatic who's originally from Beaudet, Minnesota, a tiny town on the Canadian border. He currently lives in Portland, Oregon, and he's engaged to Robert, his partner of 21 years. They share a bull terrier mix named Cornelius, who, if you Google him, shows up on the first page of results. Pretty impressive, if you ask me. He, my guest, is the owner of the Animal Behavior Clinic in Portland. He's co-owner of Instinct Dog Training, which is also in Portland. He's renowned veterinary behaviorist, Dr. Christopher Pockle. Welcome, Dr. Christopher Pockle. It's so nice to have you on the show. I'm humbled by that introduction. Truly, I am. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. I'm excited for the conversation and the chat and oh, just all of the things. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for agreeing to be on my little show. I spent the whole day prepping for this because I was like, we don't talk science here. We talk, you know, the touchy feely stuff awesome. and all of your interviews everywhere I looked have been all about science. And I even watched one in its entirety about like itchy dogs. And it was with a vet and a veterinary behaviors, you, and you were talking about 
itchy dogs from a perspective of veterinary medicine and animal behavior. And I was learning so much, but that's not what we do here. So actually, before I go any further, I'm going to introduce the drinking game for our show. Anybody participating in our drinking game today, anytime you hear this word. The secret word is science. Science. Make sure you take a drink of whatever you're enjoying, but please make sure you're of age wherever you're joining us from. Please never drink and drive and always drink responsibly. What are you drinking tonight, Dr. Pockle? So I am enjoying a little highball of Woodford Reserve this afternoon, which is a nod to, uh, it's one of the drinks on the, uh, the Delta cabin. And I have been missing my travel for these last 18 months. And so I'm excited to get back in the swing of things and get back on planes and, and back into my hotels and back into those rhythms. So Today is sort of a nod to, you know, past and future and a little bit of appreciation for today as well. Oh, wonderful. Well, I'm actually drinking a peachy keen because I think travels peachy keen myself. It has bourbon, a little bit of uh, peach schnapps, peach, simple syrup and fresh lemon juice. So cheers to you. Mm. Thank you for being on the show. It's so exciting. Mm. Well, I know that for a fact you traveled a lot before the pandemic hit. Yes. Fewer than a hundred veterinary behaviorists in the country. Is that right? Yeah. Also, yes. Yeah. And there's truly about 50 of us, I think, that are actively practicing here within the continental U.S. The American College includes members in Canada. There's a handful in Australia, Western Europe, one or two in Japan as well. So the actual number in the U.S. is is even more significantly uh, smaller than that hundred mark for sure. Wow. So a hundred probably in the world, you think? Yes. Yeah, of the American College of Veterinary Behaviors, there are fewer than 100 of us that exist in uh, anywhere. <laughs> I feel so special that I have one on my show. I'm so excited <laughs> right now. Well, actually, most people don't know what it takes to become a veterinary behaviorist. I introduced you, obviously, as a doctor of veterinary medicine and an animal behaviorist. But I actually went to the, you mentioned, the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists website, and I looked at their requirements to get certified just because I'm that person. And I like, I'm just curious. And so for our first game today, we're playing What's a Behaviorist? Because I want to find out more about you and your career trajectory. And this is a quick fire challenge. So I'm going to say a requirement and you're going to answer my question that I've prepared for you about that requirement. Are you ready to play? I'm ready to play. And I hope I remember all the things I had to do in order to get here. So this okay, will be a test actually, of epic proportions. <laughs> when I was writing this game out, I was like, well, how long has it been since he was certified? So how long has it been? It's been 11 years of, oh, of wonderful, remember. wonderful practice and, and sort of leaning into that certification. But yes, it's been 11 years. So I think I will remember all the details, but, you know, grace and humility if I don't, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, the first one's an easy one. So in order to become a, a diplomat, diplomat or diplomate, I've learned is the proper pronunciation. In order to become a diplomat or diplomat of the ACBB, one, you have to graduate from an accredited vet school. Where did you go to vet school? I graduated from the University of Minnesota College of Veterinary Medicine back in 2002. Very good. You see, you're good at quick fire. All right, yeah. next one. Number two. You have to attain a veterinary license. Who issues veterinary licenses? The state boards. Uh, and I hold veterinary uh, licenses in Minnesota, Oregon, and Washington. And I have an inactive license in Wisconsin as well. Wow, look at you. All right, number three. You have to complete an internship or equivalent. 
What's an internship? So an internship is a typically a multi-species, multidisciplinary approach as a veterinarian where you're getting mentorship in all sorts of different uh, aspects of veterinary care. So a very, very customary as a sort of a prerequisite to a residency program to get that sort of intensive, hey, here's all the nuances, but still guiding you with mentorship. Okay, number four, you have to complete a residency. So what's the difference between an internship and a residency? So the internship is broader over the course of the entire scope of what veterinary medicine entails versus a residency is where you really start to get into your unique discipline like behavior or radiology or surgery or dermatology or any of those specialty fields. Awesome. Okay, next one. You have to author a peer-reviewed scientific paper. How long did it take you to write yours? Oh my gosh. What people don't appreciate about writing scientific papers is how long it takes, especially when you're writing a paper about the water preferences of domestic cats, because they don't do what you think they're going to do when you're actually doing your research. So it took me about two years to come up with it, to plan the study, to test the stuff and to write it up and to get it submitted and get it approved and get it edited and all of those things. So it's a process. It's really a process. So you wrote your residency on the type of water that domestic cats like to drink? So it was specifically looking at preferences versus uh, of still versus flowing water sources. When we look at sort of fountain <gasps> usage versus regular bowls and all of those sorts of things as to, you know, is there a species preference or, or what? What do we know? What did you find? It depends on the cat, which is like the <laughs> most cat thing of all, right? To be like, nah. Some of them really preferred one, some of them really preferred another. And the definitive answer was you you literally have to ask the individual cat and they will tell you based on where they choose to drink the water, but it's not an absolute across the species. That's amazing. So you recommend if somebody doesn't know, they could put both types of water sources out and see which one gets used more. And then you have your answer. Bingo. You wrote a paper for two years. And <laughs> That's the takeaway. That, yes. That's amazing. <laughs> that is so cool. But listen, I always think that there's not enough research on stuff that's practical and like, you know, really makes a difference in our daily lives. So thank you, because that actually is good research for pet parents to have, you know, to yes. base things on. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. All right. Next one. You have to write three peer reviewed case reports. What were your case studies names? Did they have names? Oh my gosh, that, now that one I'm going to struggle with. I remember one of them was uh, a cat who was engaging urine marking behavior, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to remember the cat's names because truthfully, one of the requirements of writing these case reports is you have to fit like an entire lifespan of information into at that point, six pages of double spaced content. And so everybody changes the names of their pets to something like the letter B so that you can get as few <laughs> characters as possible taken up by the name. So all of the cases we sort of, you know, protect the innocent from an anonymity standpoint and we end up abbreviating everything. So I don't remember the names of my uh, my actual patients for that, which is oh, I'm sad to say. No, it, no, it's fine. It's fine. Actually, it's just interesting to me because obviously from a scientific perspective, whether it's like, you know, uh, Slinky or, or Lucy is really irrelevant. So I get that for sure. But you wrote it on mostly cats, dogs, both. Were there any a other of, A mix species? of species, yeah. So I did two of my cases on dogs and one of them was on cats. Yep. And so it, so you, and that's one of the things about the residency process is you're not just looking at a species. So it's not just dogs or just cats or not even domestic animals. 
The study period includes horses and cows and primates and parrots and gosh, I worked with a couple of giraffes uh, as well as some big cats. And so all of those things get included in various ways throughout the residency so that now as a clinician, I can say, hey, I'm not just looking at dogs and what they do, but is there anything I learned about working with that mountain lion, for example, that informs what I might pull into here? So you, you really broaden out the, the species diversity of knowledge, which is amazing. That is so, so cool. In veterinary school, just veterinary school, how many species do veterinarians typically study? So it, I would say overall, you get dogs, cats, uh, sort of your domestic species. Some of the universities really dive into exotics as well. And that's, you know, hundreds of species, truthfully, at that point. The vast majority of, of schools then also cover horses, cows, goats, pigs, you know, kind of getting the major domestic production animal species as well for that large animal portion, quite honestly, because it's, it's actually a different way of practicing, whether you're looking at the sort of the, the health and welfare of an individual animal versus herd health and kind of yeah. what works the best for everybody. So you, you actually get both of those experiences throughout that education. That's really cool. Okay, last question. For to become certified by the American College of Veterinary Behaviors, you have to apply and take a comprehensive two-day test. What was the prep for that test like? And how did you feel when the test was over? So the prep has its own interesting story. So after my residency period, which lasted about four and a half years of intense mentorship, specifically in the field of animal behavior and doing coursework and all of the graduate studies and all of that, I ended up taking about three months off to study. So even at the end of all of that, it was still a matter of saying, hey, I've got all of these textbooks that have not yet been read and I need to know everything within them. So it was three months of 10 to 14 hour days of reading and note taking and memorization and you know four hour a day study sessions with a colleague of mine out in North Carolina. And we were grilling and grilling and grilling and grilling and grilling. <sighs> So that, you know, for someone who says, oh, I've achieved board certification, it's a really big deal by the time you, number one, survive all of that, number two, succeed in the discipline as well. So it's a, it's a process, I tell you what. Bravo. So, okay, so the day after, once the exam was done, did you go get a cocktail, have a huge meal? Did you go to sleep? What'd you do? I pretty much slept. Yeah, it was a matter of just being like, you know, there's this this weight. And then at that point, gosh, everything's out of your control, right? You've shared what you know, you've answered what you can answer, and nobody's ever going to know everything. And so you you get comfortable with, with being uncomfortable about not knowing those answers. And at that point, it's out of your control. And you say, you know what? I just got to wait for my scores to come back, hope for the best, and keep the fingers crossed until then. How did you celebrate when you found out that you passed? Well, the funniest part was that, you know, we had been told we were going to be receiving, I think we were told we would receive like a, a certified letter. So I was waiting for this letter. I'm watching my mail, watching my mail. And then the notification actually came via email with sort of a nondescript subject line. So I was literally just sitting down sort of mid-morning to check my thing. I pop open this email. I'm like, oh, what does Bonnie have to say? And it's like, congratulations. And I was like, <gasps> <laughs> So I was not expecting to find out then that way or without sort of, you know, a bit more of a rip open the envelope sort of right. a moment. So, you know, I was home alone at the time. So I, you know, quickly called my partner. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It happened. <laughs> ah! 
So I squealed yeah. a lot. That's the honest answer is I squealed a lot. That was the- that is amazing. I'm sure, but you didn't get that <laughs> that like take a deep breath, like self soothe, like before opening the envelope, right? Like you would have probably given yourself a pep talk, but you didn't get to do that. No, none of that was part of the process. It was just you know ripping off the bandaid without even knowing it was going to happen. All of a sudden, the information was just right there in front of you and. I mean, I'm thankful it was the information that it was and I was able to celebrate, but dang, that would have been hard if it had been different news. That's exactly what I was thinking. I'm like, oh no, had it been the opposite answer, it would definitely have been so devastating. Yeah. So definitely something yes. to consider, ACPB. <laughs> uh, <laughs> They've since refined that a bit. <laughs> good, good, good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm very glad to hear that. So how long does your certification last once you go through all of this process? So at the time, it was essentially a, a permanent certification, right? And so all of us, we go through, you know, education every single year. We're doing our continuing education credits for our baseline uh, DVM or Doctor of Vet Med certification, our licensure. So we're going through continuing education all of the time. Now, the newer diplomats, uh, and this is across not only the behaviorists, but across the other specialties as well, those certifications are now good for 10 years. And there's a recertification process and different paths of, of ways to achieve that to, to really guarantee and ensure that the knowledge remains top notch. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, science changes, thing, it, findings change. So I'm yes. sure that they'd have to make sure that you're continuing your education for sure. Absolutely. All right. So how many species do you specifically work with now? So I primarily work with dogs and cats. And the reason for that in my practice is those are the species that I really, really understand both the behavior and the medical concerns for. But I will consult with veterinarians anywhere in the world, truly on any species, if they understand the medical components, but they're struggling with some aspect of the behavioral care. I'm happy to hop on a call and say, hey, tell me what you know about this animal, what I don't know about their behavior. I know where to find it we together can really create a collaborative relationship to get these issues addressed for this particular animal. So quite honestly, uh, the vast majority of what I do in the clinic with my primary patients is canine feline, but sky's the limit for everything else. Yeah. I mean, you studied it all. So whew. I mean, gosh, they say that most of us only use what 10% of our brain. I have a feeling you're using <laughs> way more than the average person. All those mammals filed in there. My goodness. All right. So this is a very controversial question. And I have to ask it because I feel like this is the show that, you know, braces all the controversial questions. I'm just kidding. So tell me, are dogs more trainable than cats? Ooh, I would say no. I would also say, though, that they are differently trainable. Cat, cats are learning every second of every day, just the same as dogs are. But the cool thing about cats, and this, this actually is a really cool thing about cats, their overall nature is not sort of an isolation type of a relationship with their people. They're very, very social, but they're not quite as into what do you need from me? And so we have to capture their motivation differently in order to really get them through the training ropes, if you will. But no, we do training with cats all the time. So it's, it's a matter of whether it's teaching individual skills or modifying behavior for emotional issues. Absolutely, we do it all the time. And they're willing participants. Most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> How do you motivate your cat client or cat patients? Yeah, it depends, right? So the cool thing about dogs is like, you can almost always just like oversimplify it. You throw some food at them and they're like, cool, that was amazing. I'll do that. 
the cat kind of, you know, bats the, the food around a little bit and ponders it and then might take a little bite and go, mm, not today. I'm not all that hungry. So mm -hmm. it's a very different process. So we leverage other things, whether it's play or petting. Some cats really just want to be left alone. So we can leverage that as a reinforcer. It gets all kinds of creative. And we actually, that's one of the fun parts of working with cats is really getting to know not just cats as a species, but the individual animal to be able to say, who are you? And what motivates you and how can we leverage that to achieve something that sort of accomplishes the goal that we're here to accomplish and also really acknowledge, and this is where I could go on a, a huge soapbox tangent forever, not everything should be trained, right? We do actually honor the unique needs of each individual animal. So sometimes part of this process is say, you know what, we can let cats and dogs be cats and dogs. And how do we sort of nudge that in directions that are you know, perhaps safer or makes them better living companions in the household right. while still honoring who and what they are, which is an amazing part of the job. I love that. I agree 100%. I'm a parent. I kind of parent in the same philosophy. Like why? I ask my husband a lot, but why is that the rule? Yes. And he looks at me and he's like, because isn't that just the way it is? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. It's <laughs> not good enough. It's not no. good enough. No. Thank you. I agree. I would completely agree with you. Well, I have to take a break right now and I'm going to dive in a little bit further into the difference between vets, vet behaviorists, trainers, etc. as soon as we come back from these messages from our sponsors. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Pet Welcome back to Covered in Pet Hair. I'm your host, Isabel alvarez Arada, And today I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Dr. Christopher Pockel, who is an animal behaviorist. And he works primarily with cats and dogs. And he just told us all the reasons why working with cats is amazing. But now I'm going to bring it back to working with dogs and cats that maybe are not behaving the way that they're pet parent would like and we're going to play a game and it's called much ado about naughty <laughs> awesome. and the reason it's called much to do about naughty is because we're really lucky in this day and age where we have a lot of resources yes. when it comes to our pets behaving badly but a lot of people don't know where to start they can recognize the problem but they don't know where to turn and honestly most pet parents especially during covid times don't have a ton of income to go to like three different places to address the same issue. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a scenario and you're going to tell me where you would steer this pet parent. And this is not to say that you can't work in conjunction with other professionals, but where would you start? Okay. Are you ready to play? I am ready. Let's do it. Awesome. Let's go. Much ado about naughty. 
A dog with fear and anxiety is a danger to herself and her home. Where does she Where turn? are we going to go? Yeah. So uh, the first thing to do truly in that case is to have that animal checked out by a veterinarian. If you can, if you've got a resource in your area, because sometimes, especially if that's a behavioral change that can be due to pain, that can be due to changes in thyroid levels. It can be due to a urinary tract infection. It could be due to cognitive changes in an elderly pet. So in that case, we definitely want to get that clean bill of health first before we start going down either the let's medicate that, let's train that, let's make sure that animal is healthy first. Fantastic. Next one, a dog that is reactive towards strangers of all species is unpredictable and has a bite history that may be getting worse. Where do they turn? Yeah. So this, this one could actually go in a lot of different places. And in some cases I would say, whoever is most available. And by that, I mean a certified trainer, a behavior consultant, the primary veterinarian, or perhaps the veterinary behaviorist. Because when we've got an immediate safety risk, we really wanna make sure that we've got someone who can step in right away and say, hey, I'm probably not going to be able to address all of these pieces. And you may actually want to talk to multiple people in regard here, but hey, with my role, I can help you with this piece. I can help you read your dog's body language. I can show you how to train that dog to perhaps wear a basket muzzle or use some defensive leash handling to make sure that you can navigate that animal through life safely. So urgency might actually direct that one a little bit more and then we fill in the gaps along the way. I love that answer. That is perfect. Next one, cat refuses to allow herself to be medicated. Where do they go? So yeah, that's a great, great question because that's a really common problem. So first and foremost, ask the veterinarian because especially when it comes to feline medications, there's often different ways to compound them that can make it easier for that whole administration process to happen. If that's not good enough or we don't have other options, then perhaps working with a member of that veterinary team or perhaps a technician to work through some cooperative care training methods or really employing a trainer who can really work specifically to work with that cat to teach that tolerance process. Awesome. A senior dog is withdrawing, but all his blood work and physical exams are normal. What's the next step? Ooh, that one's that one's a good one for the senior dog, especially those are often cases where I love when that veterinarian is able to consult with a veterinary behaviorist or the pet parent is able to do exactly the same because, gosh, there's certain things that we as a specialist at a specialist discipline would know to look for that a general practitioner might not have on their radar. So it may be that that animal is truly healthy and maybe not. So there may be some things that, that myself or one of my colleagues would recognize and pick out from that animal's history to say, ah, wait a minute, there's these three little details off in the side kind of waiting to be discovered. Let's pull those in here. And that's something that we can do directly with the client or we can do that with the veterinarian as well to advise them more efficiently. Perfect. All right, next one. A puppy needs to learn manners before the whole family loses a finger or toes. Oh, the puppy, puppy, puppy. Yeah, in those cases, assuming that we've got a puppy who's, you know, there's not any other issues going on. I think it's a great resource to be able to get a qualified trainer, a certified trainer who's using positive reinforcement based methodology to really help that puppy understand, hey, I know you need to chew, chew this. And that's an important <laughs> detail, right? It's not just don't chew that. It's not about stop that. It's about, hey, you need to chew, chew this. Yes, And let absolutely. me help you understand that. Yeah, it's a great, great yes. option. I love that. Yes, tell them what you want, not what you don't want. Okay. Rescue Kitten has been in his new home for months, but is still not settling in well. 
Where do they go? Ooh, that's a good one as well. That one could go in a lot of different directions. It probably doesn't have quite the urgency that that other case that we were talking about has, but that's gonna depend on who do you have in your community or online or even at a distance who understands cats to say, hey, can we troubleshoot this a little bit more? So I think that's really gonna be probably a putting together of the minds to really say, have we met that cat's needs? And is there something else that's a little bit different from usual here, medically or behaviorally or emotionally that we need to address to really help that cat acclimate? Perfect. Okay, the last one. And this one, you know, I feel like this is a pretty common sentiment. And I hope that people would actually seek out professional advice before they just make the decision. But a pet is medicated for compulsive tendencies, but the pet parent would like to see them live without meds. Where did they start? Yeah, that's going to be the conversation. Definitely, definitely, definitely for either the veterinarian or the veterinary behaviorist. And then there, because there's some really specific details there about the appropriateness or inappropriateness of medication usage, or perhaps making dose adjustments or understanding how meds may or may not interact with other health needs that really needs to be handled by someone who has not only the behavioral understanding, but the veterinary medical prescribing knowledge as well. So that one, yeah, turf that one right over to the DVM team for sure. Perfect. Would you, I guess, describe your role as kind of like in the human world, a psychiatrist? Mm -hmm. Psychologist, psychiatrist, a little bit of social work thrown in there for good measure. Yeah, there's a lot of disciplines that kind of come together. And that's, you know, the case where we're really looking at prescribing needs, we really tow more the line of the psychiatrist, as you're saying. Right. And yet, in order to prescribe responsibly, we have to understand you know, the ethology of the species to know what's normal and what's abnormal and the psychology of how we're going to influence those behaviors and the medical needs of the animal and what that might look like and all of those things. So it really is pulling, it's a discipline that pulls a lot of information from a lot of different disciplines. That is so cool. I love that that even exists, honestly. I just think that that's the fact that we have it. <laughs> I mean, yes. well, yes, I think that the <laughs> fact that we have it, the fact that we've given animals the importance they deserve where we have created these experts in things other than oh they have pancreatitis oh you know it's time to say goodbye they have dementia yes. whatever it is they're a lot more complex than that just like we are yes. and they deserve yes. that attention when they can get it Absolutely. okay so i'm curious as to what cases you most see in your practice so we see, I would say probably the majority of what we see is some version of fear, anxiety, or stress that's showing up in a problematic way. And oftentimes, truthfully, these are animals that are misunderstood where they ha they're having an emotional reaction and they're trying to navigate their world as best they can, but they often don't have the coping skills that allow them to say, hey guys, I'm feeling a little stressed over here in the corner. Can you help me out? Can you throw me a lifeline? And so oftentimes we're working as a, almost a translator to say, oh, when the ears move in this direction, that means this, or, hey, this is a dog that when we do this sort of training exercise, ah, we can see them take a, you know, sort of a, a deep breath and we can actually do almost like meditation for dogs and cats as well by really working with them in collaboration. So the underlying issue is often fear, anxiety, and stress. And the problem, the reason why the owner is reaching out may vary from aggression to house soiling or you know urinating defecating inside the house or maybe they're chewing or digging or doing all sorts of different things but gosh underneath it all fear anxiety stress by far and away what we see okay so in most training 
and I'm not a dog trainer. I would like to one day become a certified dog trainer, but I'm not. But I see a lot of behavior modification, management, and sometimes medication being used to address these pretty severe situations. Is that kind of your toolkit as well? Yes, absolutely. The, the way that I tend to think about that is if our goal is to change or improve or support or help that animal in some way to change their behavior, the rule for me is always focusing on behavior modification and training first, because that's where learning happens. That's where we actually change or improve skill sets or toolboxes or however, however we want to put that analogy. So it's always training and behavior modification. And until we've onboarded those skills or those coping strategies, we need to manage that animal, not only to maintain safety, but also to keep them out of situations where they're practicing doing it wrong. So there's this balance or this teeter-totter that goes back and forth between training and management. And then for some of those animals, especially where fear and anxiety is an issue, they need some additional support. So that's the, if needed, portion of the medical or the medication piece of that puzzle, that three-pronged approach that you outlined. All of them are important to consider. Awesome. Okay. So management. Is management sometimes a permanent thing? Like it just, that's what you have? Sometimes it certainly it certainly can be. And that's a that's a choice that my pet parents make. Some of them say, you know what, let's say this is a dog who can't be left home alone because of distress. Some of my pet parents would say, you know what, our lifestyle supports the fact that this is a dog that we'll just never leave alone. We'll do that. And we acknowledge that he or she can't be left alone. And it's not ideal, but we can work with it. Right. So right. an owner or a pet parent may decide that that's good enough for them. Uh, or an animal who is uncomfortable around strangers, but is more than happy to hang out in the back bedroom when there's a dinner party and put some music on and chew on a frozen toy and, you know, ha happy as they can be. So giving those pet parents the permission to choose management is also an option. And, and the real distinction there is to say, do you want to change the animal's behavior? Then we're going to be doing the training and behavior modification. Right. If the goal is simply to manage safety and welfare and emotional needs, sometimes the training is sort of an add-on. So we can kind of flip-flop right. that a little bit for sure. All right. Awesome. And are there some behavior concerns that are that have more success than others? Like are some just something that you have to just accept as part of your pet? So that really depends. I mean, there's certainly breed-related traits or species-related traits. For example, if a, if a cat owner comes to me and says, I want my cat to never, ever climb on anything in my house ever again. And believe it or not, that happens from time to time. <laughs> I would have to say that's probably a pretty unrealistic expectation. You can define it all you want. And yes, we can do some training, but that's probably not going to happen for a cat. Right. Or if we were to say, gosh, I have a border collie and I want them to just hang out with me on the couch all day long and not respond in any way to moving objects and really just be a cuddle bug 24-7. Nope, <laughs> probably not going to happen. Could we right. shift in that direction? Of course we can. Of course we can. We've got reinforcement contingencies that allow for that. So again, I think it comes down to rather than saying which problems are going to be more modifiable, it's really taking a look at the big picture. Are we being realistic about yeah. what's likely to be an outcome here? And does that particular client or pet owner have the skills or the resources to really put behind that? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But all of that really factors into outcomes. That is so cool to know. I mean, I think that that's really good. You don't want to go in to somebody who already is like, oh, I can't fix that. <laughs> Absolutely. Like there's always something we can do, even if it's only to understand. There's yes. always something we can do there. Understand first, modify second. 
Perfect. I love that. Okay. So you have a new endeavor. It's called Instinct Dog Training, and you're looking to establish a facility where you're going to do board and trains. And board and trains can be a little controversial in and of themselves. So I, mm-hmm. from a veterinary behaviors perspective, want to hear what your thoughts are. And obviously, you're for them because you're going to have one. But tell <laughs> me about board and train from your perspective. Yeah, you're right. It absolutely is controversial. There's a couple of reasons for that. I would say the most the most controversy is is sort of based on the fact that historically a lot of board and train facilities utilize methodology that's more corrective or coercive. They're guaranteeing results saying, hey, in two weeks, I will make your dog fill in the blank. I don't agree with that. Right. Right. That, that sort of goes against everything that we've been talking here about sort of helping to teach and build coping strategies and all of those things. So so there's a little bit of a negative connotation there based on methodology. But we can do board and train using science based reinforcement based training methods and models and all of that. So so we can move beyond methods in terms of this conversation. The other controversy comes, though, from the fact that we say, well, gosh, if the animal is learning how to behave in this facility or in this particular kennel, that doesn't change anything at home. And we can address that too, right? We can actually work with a dog, for example, who's working with a trainer who gets a couple of short dedicated training sessions throughout that day while we're controlling that animal's environment. So they're not practicing doing it wrong. We can really efficiently teach them those skills and then we can generalize or transfer them back over to their home environment and say, hey, you as his pet parent, let's do this together. Let's transfer that so you are able to now have the same success because your dog already knows the skills. Let me show you how to do that. So that's the other place where it breaks down, where that handoff is simply, hey, I taught your dog how to sit, come down, stay. Here's the leash. Good luck. No, no, no. This is, you know, the the end of training is not when we hand the leash back. That's often where the other end of the leash training begins. So when we incorporate both of those things in by utilizing methods that are really humane and kind for the animal and take extremely amazingly good care of them in the process and make sure that their pet parents understand how to continue that at home. Oh my gosh, I've been blown away by what we can accomplish through that model. Blown away. So there is a benefit to having them in a controlled environment. I guess it's, is it the focus? I mean, are they more focused on the learning? There's fewer distractions Mm -hmm. and you're working with someone in a case like that, where you've got a certified trainer who knows how to really help that animal learn versus the coaching model, which I love as well. When pet parents want to be involved in that, that's amazing. And most of our pet parents don't have the skill set to do that yet. And so they're learning while their dog is learning, which inherently has more errors and oopses and just all of this stuff that gets a little messy, but that makes it harder for the dog to learn exactly what's needed if the learning is inconsistent. So we can clean that up and really create that focus. That's what we're really able to do in that board and train environment. Wow. That makes so much sense. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. When a dog trainer comes to your house, they're training you and the dog simultaneously. The dog's feeling your energy. You're getting frustrated. You don't know what you're doing. You're overwhelmed with the instructions. Click now, click no, don't click now. Give them the treat fast. Don't go. It's really overwhelming from a pet parent's perspective. The dog's watching you and the trainer figuring out where they stand in this whole thing. I never thought about that, but it makes perfect sense from a dog's perspective to be somewhere where it's like, oh, I'm training here. That's it. 
Yeah. Well, and something that I love about that example that you just gave is that sometimes we'll get that feedback that, oh my gosh, my dog loves the trainer more than he does me. No, no, it's not that they love them better necessarily, but it's more that oftentimes that trainer shows up and it's like that dog is all of a sudden getting all of the consistency and the clarity. Yes. The dog's like, oh, you get me. Right. Awesome. Now, if you could help them understand me too, that would <laughs> yes. be amazing. And I get you because you have experienced training. So the trainer is an effective communicator from the dog's Bingo. perspective, where we're so inconsistent with the commands and the cues and the, and the messages yeah. we give to our pets. So yes, I totally love that. I think you may have sold me on board and train. Excellent. Well, we have seven locations with Instinct actually around the country now. So feel free to message me. Take a look at instinctdogtraining.com. We've got seven locations, both East West Coast and some central locations that are popping up now too. We're really just on, on a growth phase right now. That's just incredible. That is amazing. Dog training is taking off after the pandemic. It seems like everybody's realized, oh, there's dog trainers out there. They've been out there forever, but now all of a sudden they're in much more demand. And I think it's so wonderful because people are automatically thinking I'm getting a dog and I need to budget for training. And I love to see yes. that because it's so important. Yes. yes, absolutely. And, you know, quite honestly, even people who have trained before, gosh, methods change, right? We're learning yes. all yes. the time. So absolutely. It's an opportunity to say, Hey, what's new? Like, what are some of the skills? And oh my gosh, there's some amazing things happening in the field, the really progressive things happening in the field of animal training right now, where we're really looking at the animal as an individual. And again, rather than just saying, how do I make you do stuff? How do I require things of you? It's about saying, cool, who are you? Yes, let's do this I together. Let's collaborate. Let's partner up. I can show you what I want for sure, right. but I'm going to give you a voice in this process too. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. I love that so much. Okay, so tell me, how can our audience uh, learn more about you, find you online? Tell us everything. So the best place to look for sort of the, the central uh, central hub, if you will, especially if you wanted to listen to some other conversations like this one, would be to go to my website, which is drpockle.com. Nice and easy, drpockle, D-R-P-A-C-H-E-L.com. And there you'll be able to direct yourself to the Animal Behavior Clinic, to Instinct Dog Training, to the media page with videos and podcasts and articles and all of those things. So that's the easiest place to go. You can track me down on social media as well, although I will be very honest. I had a bit of a uh, account hack happen about two weeks ago. So if you Google me right now on social media, you're not going to find me. I'm currently locked out and I don't exist. So watch for me to make an, uh, a right. return once that all gets sorted. But yes, drpockle.com is your greatest place to take a look. That is awesome. Well, I just want to propose a toast to you for taking the time to be on this show, sharing your infinite knowledge. Here's to you. Cheers. Cheers. Here's, cheers to you as well. Thank you. Thank you, really. I also want to propose a toast to my executive producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible and to our listeners on Pet Life Radio and our viewers on YouTube. Thank you for spending your time with us. Here's to a life covered in pet hair because there's no better way to live. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> to learn more about Covered in Pet Hair, please visit CoveredInPetHair.com or PetLifeRadio.com. Thanks for watching and we'll see you next time. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.